Welcome, listener. You are on the Plastic Pills podcast, and the next minute or so is all you'll hear from me this week, at least on the public feed, before this real kick-ass discussion between Matt, Victor, and featuring the co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast, Mr. Matthew Sitman. And just in case you're lost here, the enemy is conservatism with American conservatism in focus for obvious reasons this week. Uh, for the last little bit, they've been busy little bees. Uh, but this discussion is more about the conservative intellectual tradition, which it might be a mistake to underestimate, as I think this episode will make clear. It goes, it goes deeper than the cancel culture babies on, on YouTube, certainly. Anyway, I'm here, uninvited, inserting myself into the conversation, quite literally, uh, because as can happen when you have three experts in the room talking to each other, these guys jump right into discussing Straussians or Straussianism without much of a precursory coverage on what that means or who Leo Strauss was. So I thought that I'd do that real quick here so that you can get as much out of the discussion as possible. So Leo Strauss, I, I got to admit, I have affection for. He's a very good writer, very passionate writer, and a very passionate advocate for close reading, uh, particularly of political philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Machiavelli, and the list goes on. And he writes, you know, to really understand these thinkers who are not able to say everything that they thought because of the potential political backlash that might await them, so to really know them, you need to spend a long time with the texts, um, understanding that there's, first of all, what is said on the surface, but then grasping that there are hidden meanings or some, some esoteric statements that they saved for their true friends who are their close readers. And that's under layers of irony or sometimes noble lies. And, and all that sounds pretty good, right? So... Why is Straussianism then considered a legitimation of right-wing intellectuals? So also in Strauss, we find this vision of the Western tradition, capital W, capital T. And th the Western tradition is, for Strauss, this unprecedented and brilliant amalgam of reason and revelation. And this is often said in terms of Western civilization is Athens plus Jerusalem. So this is unique in history. And for, for this group of people, the success of the Western tradition is due to this very special combo meal where Greek rationality meets Judeo-Christian universality as revealed by God, of course. So you can probably see where this is going these days. The Western tradition is under attack by relativism, or what they call historicism. And historicism is just to say that ideas don't come from God or universal reason, that they are historically contingent and almost all the time not nearly as morally pure as they present themselves. And this is where the, the acolytes you know, quit reading closely, like Strauss himself advocated. So he's a convenient ally. So for the Straussians, Western civilization is on the brink of moral collapse 
because of these historical relativists saying that God and the truth and the beautiful and the good aren't aren't transcendent, that they're contingent. So although none of them are actually Straussians, you can hear the echoes that connect Straussian philosophy and the Straussian method of reading to the whiny YouTubers, the Shapiros, Petersons, Rubens, all complaining about leftist, Marxist, relativist, nihilists, and, and the list goes on. And these people are all at the gates because they, they criticize Western traditional values. And the spread of Western traditional values was completely based on their merit and not because of any material conditions or concerted efforts to globalize them. So in this episode, Mr. Sitman and the guys do a great job of showing that there's an iceberg of funding and think tanks and institutions and grooming that goes on behind the scenes in American conservatism even in university departments, um, where this narrative of, of civilizational collapse is pushed and the need to conserve the Western tradition. So anyway, that is enough from me. I just wanted to briefly expound this relationship between Leo Strauss, who I, who I find to be quite an inspiring writer, I have to say, uh, but how that trickles down into the conservative networks more broadly. And I'm not just talking about media personalities, but the think tanks, the institutions, and ultimately, as we've seen lately, public policy. So that's my preface. So please now enjoy this excellent conversation. Welcome, Matt Sitman, back to the show. Uh, we're really excited to have you. Both of us are big Know Your Enemy fans. I also really like uh, Sam Adler. That's uh, a shame he couldn't be here also, but he wrote some really great stuff on the New Republic recently. So it's yeah. a real pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be here, and uh, uh, I'm fans of both of yours, and uh, excited to be talking with you. Awesome. Yeah, and just quickly about Sam Adler, I will say that- Sam Adler Bell. Maybe a couple months. Sam right. Adler Bell, yes. He did He did such a great episode on like Freudian psychoanalysis and politics or something that was like i think you weren't there for that one um but anyway yeah. just a quick aside of listeners because a lot of our listeners are into psychoanalysis so that's a great episode to yeah check no and uh maybe just uh to break some news here uh that was a episode sam did with pat blanchfield uh who's a brilliant guy and uh you know sometimes sam and i do the bonus episodes kind of one-on-one like a book episode or something like that but you know that got such a response that we're kind of going to do some more about that this summer or related. So we're going to do an episode on Christopher Lash with uh, Chris, Chris Lehman, um, former editor of the New Republic and one of Lash's last students, actually, which I didn't know until we started talking about this. And then maybe, um, you know, the Philip Reef book, Trying for the Therapeutic, um, which is such a huge deal on the right. Uh, the uses of Freud after faith. I think maybe later in the summer we're going to do uh, an episode about that book with uh, some of our Freudian friends. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I mean, That'd be really interesting. I mean, that's one of the things that I really like about you guys. And you have a couple of really, but it's anyway, like general uh, episodes, like your trilogy on abortion, where you more or less cover the whole history um, of abortion activism on the religious right, the intellectuals behind it, what happened at the Supreme Court uh, with the 5-4 podcast, which I really enjoyed, you know, as a kind of legal nerd myself. Uh, but then you also have these more idiosyncratic episodes on Sal Bellow and Alan Bloom, where it's a little bit insider baseball, but you really feel like you get to know the subject matter a little bit. So you know, there's a lot of great stuff there. Uh, and actually, 
just for those of our listeners who ha- have no familiarity with you uh, or know your enemy, can you tell us a little bit about how it is that you came to be so interested about, in conservatism and your own, a little bit about your own political journey? Sure. Uh, the short version is that, um, I mean, Know Your Enemy is, is a podcast, as I mentioned, I do with my great friend, Sam Other Bell. Um, we started it, I think, uh, spring of 2019. So it's actually, we've been doing it for a few years now. Um, uh, but it's focused on the right, on the conservative movement in the United States, mostly the post-war, you know, um, uh, movement that the conservative intellectual movement that we associate with, you know, the rise of Ronald Reagan and kind of the the rightward shift in our politics. Uh, but I, my interest in that stemmed from the fact that I was a young conservative. Uh, I'm on the left now. I don't hesitate to call myself a, a socialist, a democratic socialist. I'm, I'm on dissent's editorial board now. Yeah. Um, and I, I should say the dissent tradition is really the one I feel most comfortable identifying with uh, some of the emphases they've had over the years. So I, I'm very proud of that. Um, and one reason I became connected to dissent was as a young conservative, my, when I was 23 years old, I think the, I, I took a graduate seminar with Michael Kazin uh, in the history department at Georgetown and kind of uh, it was on the American conservative movement, actually. And he this was like, you know, uh, spring of 2005 after George W. Bush had won reelection. And it was really like a, maybe there's something we're missing here. Uh, you know, why do they keep winning? And he, he said that at the start of the class. That's partly why he was drawn to those figures and those questions. Um, but I was a young conservative. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, uh, both religiously and politically conservative. I was raised in uh, a fundamentalist Baptist church. Um, fundamentalist is not my pejorative. It's, it's their self-descriptor. Um, King James Bible, a lot of end time stuff. Uh, and again, right in central Pennsylvania, which became like the heart of Trump country in my state, uh, the county I grew up in when I think 71% for Donald Trump in the 2020 election, to give you a sense of things. Jesus. Um, and I went to a conservative evangelical Christian college, Grove City College. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, and then even my first few years of graduate school, I was definitely uh, still involved in the conservative movement. They actually take really great care of uh, graduate student, PhD student types who they see some potential in. So, you know, I'm not an embittered ex-conservative. Uh, I mean, we can talk about some of why I moved, uh, you know, left over time. It, it, I never like to truncate my conversion story too much to make it seem like it was a, a saw on the road to Damascus or you know, a bright light altar call kind of thing where I changed in a moment. It really was more gradual. You read Irving Howe and then all of a sudden things were made clear <laughs> right. or something, right? Yeah. Right, right. It wasn't like that. But, you know, into my 20s, I was still in kind of the more intellectual, academically oriented wing of of conservatism, if you can call it that, which I think was really the best wing of it. Um, I think it probably kept me, it made me feel like I didn't have to entirely sort of abandoned the right in some way longer than it might have otherwise because of, you know, there were some really wonderful people who who were very kind to me and who I learned a lot from and were very generous to me. And, um, uh, uh, but it really was kind of by the end of graduate school, you know, kind of end of my 20s. Uh, I never finished my PhD, uh, <laughs> I, I perma ABV, so I don't want to claim any scholarly expertise here that I don't have. But, um, you know, by the time I was in my early 30s, I was, you know, Definitely not a conservative anymore. Uh, late twenties, early thirties. Do you think? 
go ahead. Do you think do you think your political shift um, had anything to do with you not bothering to finish your PhD or, or were those things kind of just unrelated? It's a good um, reason not to finish if you go tell your supervisors like, look, I've completely changed my ideological framework. Well, so. it depends what yeah. the topic was. Yeah. No, no, uh, I can t talk about the topic a bit. But, it, you know, the, I, I would say the thing that actually connects those two and I've written about this and Sam and I did an episode on it was my experience of depression. Um. Uh, I, I reviewed, I had a long kind of essay review of George Shalaba's really wonderful book, How to Be Depressed. Um, and I talk about the relationship between depression and my political views, which is sort of just like a, it, it was a experience of something that I could not will myself out of, right? Uh, and so I think it was sort of the nail in the coffin to sort of a bootstrapping myth of meritocracy, you know, people's problems are ultimately their own. Uh, you know, of their own doing, uh, a sort of personal responsibility rhetoric. Uh, I, you know, both practically it meant I had trouble writing a dissertation and, you know, being productive in the way I needed to. Uh, but it also factored into my political views, as I said, you know, it's kind of a, uh, and I think it's one of the distinctive ways I think about being on the left, which is not a Promethean perfectibility hmm. utopianism, but actually a profound awareness of you know, how flawed and fallible we are and how we all struggle with things that, that again, are not problems of our own making or choosing. So um, that's how I would say my the different parts of my life connected there, uh, the academic and the political. Uh, and my, my, my focus was on early modern political thought, uh, the Reformation kind of political thought and theology in that period. So it wasn't really... Um, it would not wouldn't have been bound up in any ideological transformations, but I can say this is the <laughs> I, I was starting to lose confidence in the project in, in another sense because I'm, I'm Catholic now, too, um, which had been a long time coming. Uh, uh, I mean, I was at Georgetown in the, you know, in my 20s. Uh, drinking gin and cocktails with the Jesuit priests, you know, at the Jezrez <laughs> overlooking the Potomac. It, I remember Father Fields, especially, you know, really, you know, drilling me theologically, uh, giving me a hard time, not mm. a hard time, a playful hard time, you know, uh, of intra-Christian uh, debate and discourse. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I was writing a lot about Calvin uh, because I thought Calvin was an important part of, you know, the kind of mix of things that then you would see in, say, Hobbes or Rousseau even. Uh, Rousseau has the great footnote that those who read Calvin only as a theologian fail to understand him or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a footnote in the social contract. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think I did want my reading of Calvin to be true, which was kind of like, what if Marilyn Robinson did political theory? <laughs> that, yeah. that was how I was kind of trying to read Calvin uh, from the perspective of political theorist, slightly, you know, more generous toward him, thinking he, you know, uh, not locating all the ills of the modern world you know, in, in the Reformation or something, or nominalism, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, so I think actually uh, uh, the third and final transformation I made, which was from Protestant to Catholic, mm -hmm. uh, actually had the most bearing in some ways on my, uh, how I came to think of the intellectual project that I, I never finished as a graduate student. Well, I'd like to ask a question that we don't <laughs> normally get to ask on this podcast, uh, because You've been very overt about the kind of spiritual dimensions, uh, both to your own emotional journey and to your ideological journey. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. Like, has your relationship with God changed uh, or your understanding of God changed alongside your politics? And I'm saying this from personal experience, right? I kind of started off as a pretty conservative Roman Catholic, you know, growing up in 
small town in Ontario. You know, then I gradually lost my faith at 18, you know, read a lot of Nietzsche and Camus and all the typical stuff thinking, you know, no one understands me. And, you know, now I work for a group called the Institute for Christian Socialism, and I've kind of reformulated a lot of my earlier views to be more in line with the way I look at things now. But it's, it was quite a journey, and it'd be hard for me to disconnect, you know, my kind of spiritual orientation from my politics. And I'm just wondering if the same is true for you. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And um, maybe I should clarify by saying that, I mean, my religion and my politics are linked. But I wouldn't want to say that like a change in one caused the change in the other. They've, they kind of evolved in tandem, almost on two different tracks, and they were mutually reinforcing. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are uh, resources in the Catholic tradition that I think, um, I mean, are exemplified right now by, say, Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, you know, um, the, the Catholic tradition of, um, you know, being pro-union, pro-worker, you know, this the, the documents that you know, are, are, you know, pretty solid on, on a lot of those things. Uh, maybe not the way I'd exactly formulate them, but, you know, like it's, I think in the past few years, we've seen even like the kind of Catholic fondness for Bernie, younger Catholics yeah. on the left, right? That was a thing. And in some ways, it's more of a natural fit than, than you might guess. But I do feel like there's that aspect of the Catholic tradition has been more and more noticed at the level of like public discourse than it might have been for quite a while. You might have to go back to like Dorothy Day or, and Thomas Merton and the Berrigan brothers or something to, you know, I think have a similar moment of flourishing of a more radical left leaning Catholicism. Um, but I would, you know, uh, the way I would answer your question is that I, for whatever reason, uh, I hate to put it this way, but it's easy for me to believe in God in some sense. I have a instinctive hunger for those things i'm a very spiritual person um, transcendence or? i've had yeah uh however you'd want to phrase it mm -hmm. you know that part of it is i feel that tug very persistently and even in the depths of my worst depression that didn't really leave me um you know sometimes you might think is this god a loving god or not <laughs> you know uh but but the basic kind of existence of god was not something that that i that's like the looming question for me. It's more like I have these instincts and impulses. I've had genuine mystical religious experiences in my life, and I've tried to figure out what to do with them. And for me, you know, there's a lot of reasons I became Catholic, but I think it was, you know, when you grow up fundamentalist, it's a very like world denying, body denying experience. Well, religious experience is, is fine, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, a bit, um, Manichaean and a bit um, disembodied sometimes. And so for me, I, I as I got, got older and grew up, I found like the life is hard and, and difficult, but there were moments of great beauty and transcendence or fullness, you know, sometimes even in very simple things. And I've sometimes have said, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Problem of Pain. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write The Problem of Pleasure. <laughs> you know, like does, does, does the existence of beautiful, wonderful, things and moments in our life tell us anything about the character of reality or, you know, uh, God's existence or not, or, or what kind of God that God is, you know, um, that to me was a big question. So Catholicism, to borrow a line of Walker Percy's, there's a lot of Catholic stuff, you know, um, holy water, rosaries, statues, um, you, you kneel and your hands are on the, you know, old wood pew in front of you and you know it, it's um it, it's a faith of sensuality in some ways in that ways you know our our 
it's a not a faith that kind of goes runs away from our bodies and embodied existence, but goes into it. And of course, the the culmination of that is the the Eucharist, where we think Jesus is literally present in the bread and the wine. Uh, however, you want to render that formulation, but it's it's real. And so uh, that was why I was tugged toward Catholicism. And you know, along the way, there were a lot of you know how I understood the Bible. Obviously, you know, if you grow up fundamentalist, you just and you learn anything about the history of Christianity and, uh, you know, how, how uh, the Bible came to be compiled um, and put together and just those kinds of things, you, you know, I, I led me in a Catholic direction too. But, um, you know, uh, that's, that's, I think, the short version of, of how I ended up uh, where I am. Yeah. That's so interesting. You know, I, I'll say listening to all this I, as someone who grew up with, even though my parents are from Chile, so you'd expect, you know, some sort of Catholicism, but I would just, for whatever reason, you know, uh, unlikely reason, both my parents were like pretty much atheists, like, you know, totally secular household. Uh -huh. So, you know, listening to this stuff, it's, you know, um, not, not, it, it's, it doesn't make like a natural intuitive connection, but I think what you've said about, um, the Catholicism and like the the presence of beauty and pleasure seems really compelling because my only sort of like outsider engagement with like thinking about, okay, which type of Christianity makes sense was, I don't know if you've read like Umberto Eco's book, like the, uh, you know, the one the about, um, what's it called? The, no, the one of it with the library, oh, Sorry, uh, yeah, the, 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 the name of the rose, I yeah, the, the name of the rose. No, you haven't. Okay. Cause there, there's that whole, I guess it was like the debate between the Franciscans and like the, you know, um, uh -huh. I, you know, I don't, I don't remember the two. It's been a while. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, of course, like all this ornamentality of Catholicism, you know, it seems like it would be like counter to this like true teaching as obviously like a total like non-believer. Mm -hmm. But then I think what you just said about sort of like the body not denying it, um, it's just it, it's compelling. And it's like another side of an argument that I hadn't heard. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And I would say even um, if you go back and look at like the Augustinian tradition, uh, one of the interesting things that comes through in confessions, uh, I think most clearly this, you know, my reading is inspired by like somebody like Aubrey Hendricks, right? Is the fact that he does actually chastise the Manichaeans and other people for demeaning the body uh, or suggesting that the body is the source of sin because, of course, the real source of sin is the spirit which misuses the body. Uh, the body, you know, itself is a gift from God and we need to appreciate it as such. So I do think that there's a lot of gas left in that tank uh, when it comes to trying <laughs> to reformulate something like Catholicism or Christianity for the 21st century. Uh, but you know, that's not what we're here to talk about, sadly. So <laughs> right, right. It's, and it's a good segue actually to talk a little bit about some of the things that Victor and I have chatted about before, uh, which is these new kinds of conservatism that are emerging uh, in the United States and elsewhere, many of which are deeply inspired by militantly right-wing forms uh, of Catholicism. Uh, so you could think about the post-liberals as being, you know, exemplars there, people like Adrian Vimule, uh, Patrick Deneen, uh, Sorbomare, who's a convert, uh, you know, all these people who've really risen in profile over the last couple of years. Could you tell us a little bit about how we got there? Uh, what's the also al also interesting? Sorry, al sorry to cut you off, but I'm also, you know, worth noting, too, that, you know, uh, the, the the Supreme Court is also like yeah. a bunch of Catholics, isn't it? Like the ones yes. who at least except for, I think, Sotomayor, maybe, mm -hmm. but are pretty much all the conservatives are Catholic. Is that right? Yeah. Or is one of them Gorsuch not? was baptized Catholic, uh, but uh, as an adult, I think he's attended an Episcopal church. So yeah, it's, yeah. when you uh, get in these arguments, it's always like, well, do you count Gorsuch or not? But it's beside the point. It's like five <laughs> yeah. or maybe six, you know, uh, on yeah. the right are yeah. Catholic. Right. And uh, um, yeah, it's a, a notable presence. Anyway, sorry. No, Matt. no, no, no. Yeah, I was almost I was pretty much done. Right? And I should say it's also interesting that um, 
Gorchuk was John Finnis's uh, student, and Finnis is arguably the most important Thomistic legal and political philosopher, I'd even say, in the world right now. Uh, and you can definitely see the influence of a lot of his thinking on some of these post-liberal characters. But, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what the substance of their thought is maybe later on. But given your background and the kind of history of this movement, both intellectually and practically, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how we transitioned to this post-liberal moment? Uh, was it a long time coming? Was it inevitable? Was it contingent? What led us here? Well, it's a it's an interesting question in part because, um, I mean, you mentioned John Finnis uh, in the 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 third and final episode Sam and I did on Know Your Enemy about Roe. We we talk about, uh, you know, we we didn't want to make it a totally intellectual, ideas driven story. So a lot of the other two episodes are about, you know, other aspects of the anti-abortion movement, the anti-choice movement, but. Um, Finnis, you know, was the teacher of Robbie George, uh, the Princeton professor and uh, uh, founder of the James Madison Society or James Madison program at Princeton, which is, uh, I think, one of the first and, and far and away the most effective of these kind of conservative beachheads at universities where they can bring in conservative scholars for like a visiting year and they might teach a class. They might you know, get a chance to work on a book, that kind of thing. So the Finnis influence, and he was Gorsuch's teacher. He was Robbie George's teacher. But then also, if you kind of look at the net, the slightly younger generation, people more my age, uh, our age, I'm guessing roughly, uh, who are now coming to leadership positions in the conservative movement. Uh, it, it's Robbie George's student, um, uh, Anderson. What's his uh, first name? Um, Ryan Anderson. Sorry, Ryan Anderson, a Robbie George student, um, who then went on to do, he was an undergrad, uh, uh, Robbie George was his undergrad mentor, and then he went on to do a PhD in political theory at Notre Dame. Uh, Ryan Anderson, he's the current president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, uh, you know, it's it's the the tracing and charting of these influences is really interesting. Um, but among some of the other figures you mentioned, um, when I was a young conservative, uh, you know, and in graduate school, Patrick Deneen was on my dissertation committee. Really? Yeah. Wow. I knew him quite well. Um, we were very close. Mm. Um, I mean, he came he to spend- He is a smart guy, I will say. I mean, um, there's a reason Cornell West had nice things to say about why liberalism failed and even didn't Obama, you know, uh, yeah, it was on a summer reading. <laughs> yeah. He wrote, he wrote. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. So someone like Deneen was on my, uh, again, dissertation committee, the dissertation I didn't write, but I, I like, we were close enough. He, he brought his son to spend a weekend with me and my family in central Pennsylvania, uh, to teach wow. him how to shoot guns. He'd never really <laughs> shot before. And, wow. and my dad, uh, that's interesting. My dad makes custom rifles for a living. Uh, uh, <laughs> crazy thing cool. to say these days. It's more for like competitive target shooters or, or big game hunters. Sure. Uh, he doesn't sell anything uh, of the sort we've seen lately in the news. I'll put it that way. Uh, but um, uh, Josh Mitchell, who's one of the signees of the new National Conservatism Manifesto or Statement of Principles they put out just a few few days ago, he was uh, my my main uh, mentor, uh, the the chair of my committee. Um, so those are two people active in the national conservatism stuff. I mean, the, you know, the, the actual conferences that Yermazoni and others put on. Right. Um, and my third reader w uh, was Jean Bethke Elstein, who was, you know, a very prominent proponent of the Iraq war, debated Stanley Harawas in the pages of first things around that time. Uh, and, and then too, I, I got to know a fair number of Straussians, uh, Jim Caesar at the university of Virginia, Harvey Mansfield. Uh, who just turned 90, I guess, um, celebrated. Yeah, there were memes going on about too. that. 
Yeah. Um, I, I Hadley Arcus, uh, a very important anti-abortion figure, political theorist at Amherst. I knew a lot of these people, and I can say, uh, the. I don't. I'm still trying to figure out what exactly happened, because hmm. I. One thing I've tried to say in different ways. I know your enemy, uh, is that. There's a lot of continuities, of course. Like you go back to the origins of the conservative movement, and you say, okay, an origin, a movement that sort of was hatched to oppose, or that you know really gained steam to oppose the civil rights movement, um, was you know in bed with the Birchers and and conspiratorial anti-communism, um, anti-democratic in that sense, you know uh, that the white race should rule in the South even if they didn't have a numeric majority, as Bill Buckley put it in the infamous. 1957 National Review editorial, Why the South Must Prevail. Like, it's not shocking that it cashes out in something like Trump or, you know, the, the, the kind of more nationalist, uh, maybe authoritarian, uh, more anti-democratic strains that are, you know, seem to have come to the fore. They've always been there. But I can't say I just didn't hear people talking the way I see and hear and read, you know, conservative, these post-liberal or, you know, new right uh, figures talking today. Um, and I think part of it is, you know, w what intervened between my early 20s and, and my mid 30s, while well, a black president, for one thing. Um, I think especially for the religious ones, the Catholics, the combination of Trump coming onto the scene and Francis becoming Pope was yeah. like this this kind of combination that broke their brains because they couldn't even kind of have the security of a church that they knew was their reliable ally uh, politically and otherwise. And it, it really is true that the conservative movement in the United States um, w under uh, John Paul II and uh, Benedict XVI was extremely close with uh, the Vatican. Uh, um, you know, Father Newhouse, the, the founder of First Things, you know, was, you know, on EWTN all the time. I mean, George Sorry, Weigel. Just for our listeners who don't know, First no. Things is arguably uh, the premier um, kind of right Christian intellectual magazine uh, in yeah. the United States. Um, you know, that yes. sure there's some people who claim, uh, you know, that it's not anymore. You know, Sorba Mari might have something to say about that. But, you know, it's the, the place where you go if you want advanced intellectual arguments presented in a publicly readable and digestible way. Yeah, it was definitely the most serious, uh, especially in its heyday, I think, the most serious um, intellectual magazine of the religious right and religious conser uh, conservatism. But George Weigel, one of the main contributors there at First Things, was John Paul II's English language biographer. I think had pretty privileged access to him. So all that's to say, the uh, Pope Benedict actually, it might have been when he was Joseph Ratzinger, but he lectured at one of the First Things annual lectures. Um, and so, you know, I feel like the the conservative uh, Catholic uh, movement in the United States, their relationship to, to the Vatican and the papacy um, underwent a, a massive shift because of the rise of Pope Francis. And then you kind of hmm. add that into the rise of Trump and and like the, uh, you know, just the the politics of resentment in a certain way, you know, gay marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court in only what, 2014 or 15, 2015, you know, so these were pretty recent things that I think, and in the kind of, you know, I don't know, uh, this uh, isn't meant to derail us at all, but even just the, the kind of, you know, political correctness, wokeness, 
put in quotes, whatever you want, like their reactivity to that, whatever you make of the reality of the sure. situation, I think was a huge factor. And it, I, I don't know what happens though to, to kind of, I don't know if anything I've said fully explains it, you know, but I think those are all in play. No, no, that's, that's okay. Um, no, I think, I mean, that was very comprehensive. Yeah. No, for sure. I, I, so I was thinking if maybe we could hone in on like kind of a theoretical point about like liberalism, because like, you know, in conservatism, I, and I'd be interested to know in like when you were in those circles, like, you, yeah, you know, I think you mentioned here and I listened to your part three and other episodes, you talk about, you know, knowing a lot of these people personally, uh, engaging with them probably intellectually at the time. And, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of these people's attitudes towards philosophical liberalism, um, because it seems like maybe that's the new part of the post-liberal. Maybe it's not so new, right? Maybe you'd have some insight. You said you were pretty close to Deneen. So I don't know if, if, if that ever came up in your kind of conversations. But what was sort of like in the intellectual conservatism's attitude then and maybe like the shift now to just like liberalism as kind of this state neutrality? I guess, you know, maybe we define we can, we have maybe we don't have to define liberalism but kind of philosophically what people think i just like to make one follow-up to that also which is that this is the most robin-esque point i'm going to make <laughs> in this episode uh there's this kind of presupposition on the part of a lot of leftists and even along among some intellectual conservatives uh like russell kirk that conservatism just is the stupid party uh, as kirk put it in the conservative mind right and that it's little more than bigotry and reaction, uh, just kind of jumbled together into various apologias. But what's really interesting about the work of the best conservative intellectuals, including, I would argue, many of the post-liberals, is that there is a kind of intellectual cogency to their project. Uh, I mean, I disagree with it fundamentally, and I've said so on numerous occasions, and I'll probably be on beating that drum <laughs> until they go silent, or I do. Uh, but, you know, you read Patrick Deneen's book, and it's intellectually appealing. It's exciting. It's well-written. You read Adrian Vimulia's recent book on common good constitutionalism, and he makes some very good points against originalism, of all things, that can make it appealing to some people on the political left. So these aren't intellectual lightweights. In fact, they're making some superficially interesting points. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, thank you for that, Matt, which I, I agree with. Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's kind of lousy that, uh, conservatives all being dumb has become such a trope because it allows yeah. them to begin every every book every big essay by quoting lionel trilling the irritable mental <laughs> gestures resembling ideas right it's like we know we get it we remember guys you know it's, but this is like <laughs> the 1950s you know uh maybe update your references so but um i do think that victor your point about liberalism is interesting because i would say it did not have the place in the kind of conservative imaginary and rhetorical toolbox and and kind of the sets of ideas they were they were playing with. It was there in some ways. Um, I mean, but it was much more nuanced. I mean, uh, uh, like Deneen uh, was a student of the great uh, Wilson Carey McWilliams, uh, longtime professor at Rutgers, who had a really um, has this amazing big book he put out in the early 70s called the idea of fraternity in america but it was it was not a sharp-edged anti-liberalism it was more a communitarian like alternative to uh um the the most desiccated and kind of narrow kinds of liberalism you know it's it wouldn't be quite right to say there was no criticism of liberalism there but it, but you know I, I i feel like some of the people we're talking about came out of the liberalism communitarian debates in the 90s you know which were were not 
the tenor of, I think, what we're seeing now. And I'm not sure what accounts for it, but I, I do think um, here we can maybe bring in some Straussians. I, I think the, the work of some of the Claremont uh, fellows around like um, kind of the nature of progressivism Hmm. And the progressive administrative state, it, uh, and you kind of combine that with the kind of existing Straussian, um, like three waves of modernity, right? Um, that kind of culminates, or, or I should say, um, crashes, you know, uh, with the Holocaust and kind of the, the horrors of World War II and all that, right? Um, so there are these, there were these narratives of decline on the right that I think there was a Straussian iteration. There's a Voglinian iteration of, you know, there's a, uh, you know, it's been put in different registers and in slightly different ways. You know, the, some of the, um, you know, critiques of say nominalism, uh, that you get from people like John Milbank, uh, who do like theology mm -hmm. and social theory or, you know, Brad Gregory, the unintended reformation, which is like all the ills of modernity come from, you know, this wrong move, which was the reformation. You know, I, I think it was something where uh, that combination, an instinctive taste for kind of narratives of decline with then liberalism increasingly becoming formulated, I think in the Obama era, especially as this kind of insatiable engine that liberalism is not just this, I think as Matt and I, I know Matt's work a little bit on this better than yours, Victor, but you know, for me being trained as a political theorist, it's made me resistant to the very narrative. Some of these people also political theorists are offering because it's like, well, liberalism is this long and, you know, variegated tradition or, you know, multiple, multiple traditions, maybe aspects of multiple aspects of a tradition. It's very hard to locate it as or, or describe it as this one monolithic thing that's inexorably working its destiny out into, in the world. Um, and but that's not so that's how I think about liberalism. And we could have a conversation about, say, French liberalism in the 19th century or, you know, uh, you know, compare that to maybe a more you know, Lockean strain of liberalism and, you know, mm -hmm. but it's not just one thing and it's, it, yeah. you can't just give it a capital L and declare it the enemy, but that's kind of what's, what's happened. And so I think you're right to locate that, um, uh, as a, as a really signal thing here. I mean, it's, it's there in the name post-liberal, but I can honestly say among all the conservative intellectuals, and these are academic types I'm talking about, the names we've already mentioned, not just like pundits or something. Yeah, what did you I, describe them as? You know, <laughs> bourbon swilling, uh, people, you know, sit on the patio. Bow ties kind of, with a cigar, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. cigar, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, You know, I just didn't hear liberalism talked about in quite that way. It's not that, again, it was totally unpresent, but I, I do think some of what happened was, uh, like, like I will use the example of Patrick Deneu because this is a public, uh, paper he gave it's it's not me divulging anything but i do mm -hmm. remember this was the first inkling something had gone wrong uh with him was uh <laughs> he became this is like circa 2006 maybe seven really invested in peak oil theory um, huh. which is uh, like i'm not criticizing that per se like obviously like there is ecological crisis that we're in the midst of now and oil is a huge part of it but it was more this like the, we're going to run out of oil shortly right and, and it would be yeah. more a catastrophe for human society and civilization which 
sometimes you get the sense they long for actually that oh, okay, yes. there is a bit of burn it all down mm-hmm. but uh he actually i remember it was the western political science association conference which amusingly was in las vegas that year because i remember walking <laughs> out of some hotel and i just given a paper on rousseau and there was like some like I don't know, weird, like statue of a woman in bronze, like gold or bronze or something in their hotel. And he was like, Matt, do you ever think you'd give a paper at Rousseau in a hotel with a bronze ass outside its front door? (laughs) You know, Um, but he get that very conference. He gave a talk on peak oil in political theory and uh, the, the taste for the more radical catastrophist stuff was clearly there with Deneen, but uh, he's, so he's one of the ones I'm not as surprised by, actually. Uh, um, mm. But I think more broadly, yeah, uh, talk because, you know, the, part of the old conservative coalition was like classical liberalism. You know, there was a, a way in which some conservatives still would try to say, no, we're the true liberals here. That was mm-hmm. in the mix too. But the kind of identifying, again, liberalism as this progressively unfolding set of bad ideas that has a destiny in the world uh, a certain terminus uh, that's yeah. I think newish and you can see though the pieces of the puzzle that they kind of put together they were all there on the right there was the narratives of decline there was you know um, uh, a suspicion of at least certain kinds of liberalism uh, and I think then events uh, and the pace of social change in some aspects of our lives uh, in our culture along with like campus politics stuff and and it can't be goddamn modern neo-Marxists everywhere. Yeah, we go, right? yeah. And I think too, once you get a taste for, once some of these ideas they they put them out into the world and they got a lot of pushback, I think that hardened then the lines of um, uh, opposition. You know, like they became more entrenched and dug down a bit deeper uh, because you know to to write about some of these things in this moment when. There is a crisis of, of democracy in the United States, right? When when a lot in our political order right now is up for grabs, you just start throwing out, you know, some pretty big and uh, far far reaching ideas about why liberalism, which I and I think many people associate whatever else you might associate it with, with individual rights, protections, etc. You start saying, well, liberalism's the problem. Well, what parts of it? And just what are you <laughs> oh, going to yeah. get rid of? Yeah. You know. Yeah, no. I mean, exactly. I spend a lot of time telling exactly. people on the left that also, right? And, you know, yes. There are a couple totally. of people who take offense at uh, even my calling myself a liberal socialist, but I always like, yeah. Do you really want to get rid of rights to expression, rights to association, rights against cruel and limits on government power? Yeah. Anyway, I know Victor's uh, got a great question though. So go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, so no, I mean, I think that's important too. Like, like maybe it'll come up again in the conversation. But I, I think what's interesting also on the left is like sort of a, especially a lot of our listeners who who tend to veer more towards like I guess like postmodern like philosophy they're like a lot of them are more interested in like postmodern left philosophy figures like Derrida and then like psychoanalysis and you know we just did a series on on the idea of communism which was like a a, a series edited by Slavoj Žižek you know so we were we were reading a couple papers by people like Jean-Luc Nancy so a lot of our listeners are kind of in that circle and I think a lot of them have a lot of bad things to say about liberalism they will also locate you know the problem but so maybe we can come back to that but Uh I think the narrative of decline is really important. And I think, you you know, I think that's sort of a lot of your answer was sort of circling around uh, the narrative of decline. And maybe that can lead us into talking a little bit more specifically about Straussianism, uh, if if you're up for it, because I think what's I think like there is, you know, maybe there's a narrative of decline 
in in some of that. I don't know as much about Straussianism uh, as as you do, although I am at the University of Toronto. Uh, you know where where there is a bit of a history of, course, uh, of yes, Straussianism. Yes. We, we, we have, uh, you know, Bloom was here for, I think, all of the 70s and, and Thomas Pangle was here until maybe like 15 years yeah. ago. And then we still got Clifford Orwin. He's uh -huh, still, totally. you know, he's yes. still around. Uh -huh. um, so there's a history uh, at the University yeah. of Toronto. So I have colleagues, you know, who are sympathetic to that. But I, but I don't always know exactly how, what it is. And maybe it's come up on the podcast a little bit, but I think for the listeners, it might be interesting to kind of you know, both maybe try to explain like what Straussianism is doing. Um, and then also I've heard you talk uh, on your podcast as well and maybe written about the fact that, you know, as a young intellectual, there's something that's really in seductive and exciting about Straussianism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, like maybe putting our being able to put our thumb on what exactly that is, because a lot of our listeners will be very excited about some of the other philosophers that I was talking about on the more post-structuralist, uh, you know, like po post-modern side, and they find that really exciting. But Straussianism, I think, has a, has a real exciting, exciting, seductive aspect. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what that is as a way into just sort of explaining what it is, if we can. Yeah, uh, sure. Because I think actually there's there's kind of the same answer to both sides of your question, which is that I think at the simplest, Straussianism is a way of reading texts. Um, I think you you know there's a lot else to say about it, but um, mm -hmm. I you know I, I do think it's taken on sometimes for better reasons than others, but an era of the dangerous you know um, if you go back to say uh, the discourse uh, around the start of the Iraq War and the Bush administration and the supposed neocon slash Straussian influence uh, on it you know where you know it wasn't just Straussians like people trained by people who were trained by Leo Strauss. It was like kind of going back to the master's text and finding the Iraq war, you know, in them almost. <laughs> That's a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I, it did make me, you know, think, come on, this is really, you know, it's not that none of that is present in Straussianism or, but, you know, to me it is fundamentally a way of reading texts and that's why it's so seductive uh, as a kind of like political theory nerd, smart, maybe, maybe conservative leaning, but maybe not necessarily. Um, I think it's, it's you know, the, the conservative-minded student is more likely to be sympathetic to thinking wisdom is found in old books, but it's not a necessary, right? Uh, but, but No, so, and actually, sorry, quickly, mm -hmm. I want to actually just to add to that. It's, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, a good friend of mine, actually, uh, from my program, he's this Australian guy, and he came in, and he, he didn't even know that Strauss was, like, associated with conservatism. He just liked yeah. that way of reading the text. So he was just into Plato. He came to work with mm -hmm. Clifford Orwin, and he's kind of apolitical. Yeah. Like I, I try to talk to him about politics, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, he just seems nominally left, <laughs> but just is more interested about in the text. Yeah, yeah, than, that's, than a, that's a real thing. I'm not totally shocked you say that at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, to go beyond that, uh, um, you know, I mentioned the three waves of modernity essay of Strauss's. Even that's something that's contested how to read that. Was yeah. Strauss saying the waves are necessarily one following the other? Or is it, you know, just one way it could go um, or one way it did go? Uh, you know, so uh, part of the reason it's hard to pin Straussianism down is, is Strauss himself was hard to pin down in some ways. And, you know, uh, but to maybe then in, in lieu of a definition, I'll just kind of mention some of his books that or ideas and, and categories. So like a big Strauss set of Straussian categories are the ancients and the moderns. Right. Um, uh, with with the moderns picking up with, you know, maybe Machiavelli, um, Hobbes, you know, Strauss did a lot of work on both of those figures. Uh, some of only which recently, meaning you know, 
in my time hasn't all been translated into English. Some of his, his stuff on Hobbes and the theological political problem and things like that. So it's, it's, you know, you have ancients and moderns, you have reason and revelation, Athens and Jerusalem. Um, and, and, you know, Strauss was concerned, I think a lot with the nature of the philosophical quest, the search for truth, what was possible for, you know, human for human reason to accomplish. And, um, you know, political philosophy was always interesting. I, I, I mean, I think, Political philosophy is a special interest to Strauss in, in Straussians because it was like politics is the arena in which like the different aspects of our nature and our search for truth are like amplified or, or given concrete expression in some way. In addition to politics being a kind of architectonic science, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, and the good yeah, and, the and good all that. And all that. Too. Yes. Um, but so, you know, I think it's one way Strauss was it would probably be fair to describe him as a partisan of the ancients against the moderns, if you had to put it broadly. Um, and, uh, you know, but the, another aspect of his thought is, you know, uh, esoteric writing. Uh, uh, so, you know, in regimes where uh, toleration and kind of freedom of expression, are, where persecution, as the title of his book, Persecution of the Art of Writing, indicates, you know, uh, philosophers would have to embed kind of their true message uh, in a text by, you know, the, the attentive reader being able to pick up on the discrepancies or uh, seeming contradictions. And uh, the, the philosophical writer and reader, the, the, the writer will kind of use those contradictions to point you to what he is actually trying to say. Um, uh, and of course, what, and yeah. of course, Strauss was also, I, I should, this has been too abstract, I'm sorry. I mean, Strauss was someone who... Uh, We're you all know, about abstract here. Uh, yeah, was, but uh, <laughs> exiled from from... Germany, uh, of course, with the rise of Nazism, he was Jewish. So uh, there's been interesting work done on Strauss as like an exile figure. Of, you know what that means for his philosophy, uh, his very his interest in, in of course, Jewish uh, texts and uh, questions. I mean, Maimonides, um, uh, Spinoza, uh, figures like that. Uh, you know, so he's he's in that kind of he's a Jewish German philosopher, exile refugee. Who then, you know, I, I think in a lot of his work, you can, that's in the background. Say, uh, one of his most famous books is Natural Right and History. Um, the title gives it away. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, uh, you know, natural <laughs> right versus like more historicist modes of thinking. Yeah. But uh, he begins by talking about the Declaration of Independence and how American adherence to it means there's some, you know, spark of natural right thinking that, that there's objective right and wrong, that not everything is subject to history um, and historical change and, and therefore kind of relativism, uh, you know, and then he starts talking about Germany and how they don't believe that anymore. And he kind of like is indicating that like historicism caused the Holocaust or led up to it or you know, was a, a contributing right. factor. Um, so he, he, you know, uh, I think his context is important to realize, too. Um, and actually, yeah. could you um, could you like unpack historicism a little bit more? Because I think that is like really important mm-hmm. and also links to maybe like understanding why conservatism is so att- or like how there's a marriage between conservatism and Straussianism, maybe because the, there is from what I understand, as you, you put it in that book, kind of there maybe that it's not a conflation, but there is a link between what you're talking about historicism and then relativism, which I think well, you, you quickly mentioned, which is obviously like the enemy yeah. of like, you know, conservatives want to find eternal truths or like a historic. Maybe that's changed now with Matt's work in, in postmodern yeah. conservatism, mm-hmm. but still. Yeah. Um, well, this is where I just want to add a little wrinkle to that, though, because one of the things that's frequently 
misunderstood about that book uh, is perceiving his critique of historicism as primarily directed against left-wing uh, thinkers. You know, the Marxists, yeah. hmm. arguably so the Hegel. It's all about Burke. I mean, yeah, exactly, right? I mean, he locates the origin of historicism in neither of those two people, but in Edmund Burke, where he says he's the one who started all these major problems. And that's a pretty remarkable statement. Uh, I actually think it's a pretty important statement when you think about whether historicism has to lean left. Let's just put it crudely that way. Yeah. Uh, but another sure. major figure who's often perceived to be in the background of the text, and here's where that esoteric, uh, <laughs> esoteric kind of distinction might be important. A lot of people see the book as him coming to terms with and even critiquing Heidegger, uh, who was such a huge influence on him, later joined the Nazi mm -hmm. party. And it was seen at least by Strauss, and you know I'm sure there's a lot of Heideggerians out there who will be slamming their fist down, uh, as developing a very robust and very sophisticated kind of historicism in his own work. So could you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Because this really shows how complicated Strauss is as a figure, because yeah, there are definitely conservative elements to that book, but no book that starts by saying, you know, Burke is the origin of all of our intellectual problems is unambiguously right. Totally, totally. Um, and, you know, this is a source of, uh, don't worry, I will circle back to that, but I just to kind of give a sense of this really does matter. Um, yeah. You know, it's a great book, by it, the way, I should say. Everyone should read it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the disputes uh, early in the conservative intellectual movement, in the 50s and 60s, someone like Russell Kirk, more associated with, well, I mean, he was a, a, I think he wrote a book about Burke. Burke's the hero of the conservative mind, right? The the kind of great conservative figure for him. The genius um, of conservatism, right? Yeah. Uh, but someone, but other figures like, no, you need natural rights. You need, you know, uh, tradition isn't enough, especially when you live in a time when tradition has gone off the rails, right? Uh, if what's come to be um, is bad, then the tra tradition isn't enough. You need some kind of principles that transcend, you know, the flux of history, uh, the evolution of tradition, et cetera, to anchor your political project. Um, so the, the kind of debate, the, the dichotomy Strauss sets up there has echoed through, you know, even far lower brow uh, conservative disputes. Um, but yeah, historicism would be that there's just no truth that transcends the flux of history, right? That, uh, that a trans-historical transcendent truth. Um, now, you know, how much of that Strauss thought we could get, I don't really... It, it, that's an open question, you know. Um, how much was he at the end of the day? You stare into the abyss, and that's all that's there, you know. Or th is there really something you can hold on to in some sense? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of like a disputed reading of Strauss. Like, was he just, you know, uh, secretly an atheist nihilist who didn't really think, you know, any of this could really you could really pin any of this down? Uh, that's, you know. I think some of Strauss's own ambiguities is why you have different schools of thought uh, that come out of it. You have West Coast Straussians uh, associated with like the Claremont Institute, the Claremont Review of Books that, you, you know, uh, are very, a huge part of the Trumpist movement. But they're the ones who talk about natural rights and really think that like the American founding was in a fairly uncomplicated way, uh, you know, uh, you know, the work of genius men who we can't improve upon, basically. To be clear, uh, genius slaveholders, you know. Uh, right, yeah. Uh -huh. that, that just uh, no, me being totally. a bit of a bitch, but, you know, I, I yeah. do like to stress uh, that. But there's more, you know, I think it's, uh, the East Coast Straussians that are a bit more skeptical. Uh, their political interventions sometimes are, you know, uh, not as straightforward. Um, and, you know, they're a bit less pious in multiple senses of the word. Um, so, uh, 
you know, I, th- I think, again, I, I'm just trying to say that I'm a, a bit out of my depths here. And Strauss is a complicated no, figure. Okay. And I'm not trying to sort of, you know, put my foot down on one side or the other, but more to say these are some of the categories and themes that work in him. And historicism especially was one that, you know, it is, I think, for him linked to something like relativism. Once you say there's really no truth that transcends, you know, just you know, the ups and downs of our evolution, the formation of tradition over time, everything's historically conditioned might be the better way to say it. Is there any way to, to ever get out of being, you know, uh, to reach beyond your moment uh, in history? Um, you know, that that's uh, how he would talk about it in some of the books we've referenced, like Natural Right in History. Matt, I know you want to ask a follow-up, but just quickly, I want, I want to add, and then just to like bring it back to like the ancients, I guess the reason why there's an attraction to the ancients is because is that a way to kind of demonstrate that there are these eternal human problems or whatever that, and like, like by going back to, to the ancients somehow, like that's to capture something that is not historic. Yes. Historicist. Yeah. They did philosophy okay. the right way because they, they, right. again, in this reading, you know, thought you could, the human mind actually could, you know, uh, uh, kind of raise itself up beyond just, just, uh, everything that's around you and historically conditioning your thought. Um, but also, you know, uh, I mean, it, it, Plato especially, I think, is more important to Straussians than than Aristotle in some ways, depending on the on the one. But the dialogue format also, I think, is very attractive to them because it it again, if you're looking for kind of esoteric <laughs> reading yeah. between the lines, like dialogue is a good format to do that. And I, they have some very fascinating and kind of interesting reads of the Platonic dialogues. Um, uh, um, and uh, so it's both like I think they did philosophy right, and there's a certain uh, I I don't know it's it's kind of like a uh, the real in addition to being great readers of books close readers of text uh, that the if you the smarter Straussians that I knew would be very adept at like toggling between talking about a Platonic dialogue and then some contemporary flashpoint and kind yeah. of you know like. Uh, it's very seductive because it feels like, oh yeah, there's this like, you know, uh, grand ancient knowledge. Yeah, yeah, this pool of of ancient wisdom that we've just been ignoring, and you know, there's some truth to that actually. But you know, yeah. um, uh, that's part of I think the seductiveness of Straussianism too. The the best of them, it's really a, a, a heady mix of being able to read different languages, go back to the ancients, kind of have this critique of early modern thought and, and kind of the origins of modernity and you're mixing in kind of cultural commentary and they all wear fancy suits. And when you finish your doctorate with Harvey Mansfield, he gives you the number of his tailor in London, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I have to say like, that's true. That's true, by the way. Yeah. No, like uh, it's odd because um, the first graduate level political theory class I ever took uh, was at Carleton with Waller E. Newell, uh, who was the most important Straussian in the department. And, He's actually become pretty famous. Uh, I saw him on Netflix the other day talking about tyranny because he released a book on that recently. A good book, I should say. Uh, but, you know, there really was this idea of being kind of inculcated into a privileged cadre of people who read texts and do read through between the lines to get to the secrets of them uh, mm-hmm. and read them closely mm-hmm. so that you can access the profound truths. Uh, that's extremely uh, intoxicating uh, if you're a oh, yeah. yeah what what young person wouldn't be totally I know, right? yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean and that's I'm not sitting there to kind of bash by saying you know there's you know, n- just you know some ragtag man behind the curtain because I do think that Straussians are good readers of text 
But I, I did want to touch a little bit about this methodological point before we move on to something that's more political, because I think it's really important for our listeners who might not be familiar with Strauss. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity about this, so we're not going to settle that here. Uh, but he does have this very interesting distinction between an exoteric uh, reading of the text and an esoteric interpretation of the text. Uh, and this seems to sit uncomfortably with what some people call Strauss's golden statement, uh, which is that everything is on the surface, right? You shouldn't be sitting there looking for depth beneath the surface because it's on the surface and only on the surface uh, that the truth or the heart of things lie. Uh, and my way of reading this passage, and again, there are people probably out there who are going to say I'm entirely wrong about this, is that he is criticizing this historicization of texts that a lot of people engage in right now. Uh, you know, he was very influenced by Nietzsche and Heidegger. Both of them would sit there and say, well, you read the text in the context of what that right. person's pathology is or what the culture surrounding mm -hmm. them is. And Strauss is just saying, no, you know, read the book itself because these were smart guys. And not only were they self-conscious about what they were writing, they were self-conscious about how they were writing it because there are layers to the text that you can unpack that are deliberately put there uh, by the author and you need the kind of key to get at them. Would you say that this is right or? Yeah, no, and I, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because the other reason, especially for undergraduates or, or early graduate students, I think Straussing can be seductive is because it's a direct confrontation with the text. Yeah. Like you don't sit there and be like, let's historicize the text. You don't, you don't have to know the historical, yeah, the historical, you know, the author's biography, the entire, you know, political history, cultural context of the moment that produced this text, et cetera. And, and it's kind of saying, if you're a smart reader, you can, you can really spend time with this text and pay attention to it closely and get out of it deep wisdom too, <laughs> you know? And so it's a very, I think the methodological point is actually partly why it's so seductive too, because it's, and I think you're right, Matt, that the, the comment, you could misread the comment about surfaces from Strauss as being uh, in, contra in, in tension or contradiction with an esoteric, but I think you're right. It's actually taking aim at a kind of death of the author, you know, uh, criminosis uh, suspicion type. Yeah, thing. yeah. Lose lose the text for con in in the midst of so much context, kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen a lot of Strauss criticize people like Nietzsche, for example, on that basis because they'll say mm -hmm. he didn't even bother to argue against Plato uh, the way that <laughs> Plato would argue against the Sophists. He just sat there and pathologized Plato by saying that this moral hunger uh, was really at the basis of all of your books, uh, and so this kind of pollutes any argument that you put forward. And you know, maybe there's some legitimacy to that. But you know, kind of moving along, and I don't want to because I'm really interested in these questions, um, and I'm reading a lot of Strauss right now. Well, can I just make can I just make one yeah, more point about Strausianism before we move on? I think the last, I guess the I guess the last thing because we were kind of been talking about how, like, why it's seductive to you know young people, and then eventually, like, I guess who end up being conservatives. But maybe we'll return to that. But I guess what I'm what I what I think is also really interesting is I guess the the way that it seems like Strausianism puts the intellectual at the center, puts the philosopher at the center like cuz it seems to me that there's there's a, a level of weightiness and importance that maybe isn't present in other philosophical traditions of how important the philosopher actually is to society and of course if you're someone who's going to maybe be a philosopher well that's also i think a very seductive <laughs> idea yeah. too that like you're the most important you're doing the most important profound work so maybe you could say something about that yeah too. no i think that's uh, a good point to add as well i think uh, it, it is, I mean, it's not surprising when you think about everything we've just said, but being self-conscious about being a philosopher in in the city, <laughs> you know, uh, the, how does the philosopher, how does the person doing this work relate to 
um, you know, the society, the city they're a part of that, you know, has its own prejudices that the, the philosopher, you know, um, this is the old story of Socrates, right? That, that the philosopher may, may corrupt the youth against or, you know, um, with their skeptical inquiry, um, you know, uh, undue confidence and certainty in, you know, so I think they are very aware of the Strauss, of the philosopher's role in the, in the broader political and social context. And that's a, a big part of, um, I think the way they think. Yeah. Good. <clears throat> awesome. And then I don't know, I don't know, Matt, where you wanted to move on, but like, I guess maybe just adding those things together to sort of the reason why, I guess, because, you know, I feel like everything we've said wouldn't necessarily like, unless like um, mean that the people who read these texts are going to, are going to be conservative. Right. And as you said, you know, it's not necessarily true that a lot of Strosians are, but I guess we can maybe see or like outline a little bit the reasons why it is, is I guess one thing would be like, you know, to review like the, the being sort of against this sort of like historicism or this kind of relativistic view, which I think like left-wing politics nowadays tends to not always, but tends to kind of like to talk about the situatedness of everything. Yeah. Right. And even, even now in like woke language, right. You talk about everyone's um, positionality, right. Everything is contextual. And I think like Straussianism clearly is something that's saying like, no, there are eternal human true or like, like uh, there are eternal human truths that you can discover by reading these texts to get to know humanity. So that's one way in which I think it's attractive to conservatism. Um, I'm not sure Matt, Matt or Matt, <laughs> either of you have, like have additional thoughts about why it's or is that no, the no, main th thing? I, that's think? exactly the question I wanted to ask just because I wanted to move us on to okay. yeah. the influence oh, okay. of Strauss yeah. on politics. Um, but I, I do think that you're absolutely right that one of the influences of Straussianism, at least in the United States, and I think the case is a little bit different in Europe, uh, and for that mm -hmm. matter, even in the UK, has been to really deflate attempts to build a kind of historicist argument for uh, you know, American conservatism. Uh, I mean, the major kind of players uh, in right-wing intellectualism right now, at least in the United States, all adhere to this idea that transcendence uh, are important, right? You need a transcendent source of value in order to anchor uh, your viewpoint. Uh, and this can seem pretty abstract, but sometimes it can get really concrete. Uh, arguably the most influential Straussian, uh, at least in the 1980s, was Alan Bloom, uh, who wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind, which you guys did a great episode on. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that he brought up again and again and again is that he was encountering these students who adopted what he called the kind of easy relativism that he associated with liberalism. Uh, they were open minded, but in this very shallow way, because they weren't really committed to believing anything. Uh, so they weren't open-minded in the sense that they were waiting to adopt a certain attitude towards the truth, but just because they were dispassionate or disinterested in the whole idea of truth whatsoever. Uh, and he argued that this is a big, serious problem, and we need to rethink how it is that we teach students uh, in a university system. So there's ways of bringing this stuff down to a very concrete level. Uh, and it's important mm -hmm. because this book, of course, is usually considered a touchstone in starting off this really ugly culture war that dominates the headlines right now. And you can also see the the seeds of like kind of the narratives of decline, too. You can yeah. kind of see the way that 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 adds that waters the seeds of decline of the narrative of decline. Yes. And and let's not forget in closing, I mean, it's the German university yeah. that is the bugbear for him. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, to Matt's point, I, it's well, him just, and uh, him and uh, Mick Jagger, right? The other great enemy. Of, you know. <laughs> right. Right. Uh huh. Um, but uh, I think the, I want to say this is Strauss's own term, but I, I could be wrong about that. But the what Matt just described, Bloom picking up on, uh, 
is, I think the phrase is the cave beneath the cave, right? If the shadows on the wall in the cave are just like your prejudices, but you're so kind of easygoing and tolerant, you don't even have like strong prejudices that the philosopher can push off against, right? That will be the mm -hmm. fodder for the Socratic dialogue. If you're just too blasé about everything to even have strong convictions to, to kind of wrestle with, you're in the cave beneath the cave. Um, I just always loved that line. And so I wanted to put it in here, mm. but yeah, no, uh, for sure. I would say, you know, uh, Matt mentioned how balloons were kind of touched down in the American culture wars in the eighties and into the nineties. Um, I think another thing to give something practical, just because I feel this pressure, uh, <laughs> since uh, isn't ultimately an, uh, uh, academic podcast. So, yeah. you know, I, I have this instinct, but we um, throw the word ontology around, like, you know, other people talk <laughs> right, about Star right. Wars. So. But I think a very practical example is, and I was thinking about this because of the Supreme Court's recent decision overturning Roe, uh, and, and someone like, I think, Robbie George's amicus brief even argued for finding fetal personhood in the 14th Amendment. Uh, and one of the things I realized over time in my own, like, hanging out with these people, like, I mean, I, I hung out with Robbie George some, I hung out with Hadley Arcus some. Uh, but I also, you know, knew more traditionalist Burkean types, like my old teacher at uh, Georgetown, George W. Carey, who was a friend of Wilmore Kendall's and uh, was a scholar of the Federalist and, and the American Constitution. But like he was, you know, held up that other end of the spectrum is when it comes to judicial interpretation, there's actually a, a substantial critique of originalism for being historicist and just yep. being, well, really being positivist. Just that, you know, you, you look at the meaning of the words, you know, and, and maybe you look up their history and context, but it's, you know, there's no undergirding morality underneath the Constitution that you can draw from. And someone like Hadley Arcus would say no, like like you have to read the, con the Constitution in light of the Declaration, which presupposes that, um, um, you know, the human mind has access to certain truths and among them are the rights that government is instituted to protect and so uh i think uh you can see how even in something like constitutional interpretation like uh, critics of historicism uh would you know sometimes run afoul of the originalists who do all the historical work figuring out what you know right to bear arms meant to the average person in 1789 mm -hmm. or something right no and i should yeah. say that's sometimes made very explicit like uh in his latest book Common Good Constitutionalism, uh, Adrian B. Miller kind of follows up on his Atlantic article by saying, uh, we all knew, and he's speaking here to other conservatives, that originalism was an intellectually bankrupt project. It had useful kind of rhetorical purposes uh, in advancing conservative causes during an age where liberal positivism and liberal democracy uh, were kind of ascendant. But, you know, we're now in a position to just kind of drop it and legislate from the bench, and we should adopt my common, common good constitutionalism as the framework uh, to kind of guide. Kind of, kind, of a, kind of a badly timed book in a way. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and a lot of conservatism on uh, conservatives on Twitter got really angry at him. Uh, some of whom I think really are committed to originalism. Um, and yeah, but, we can talk well, about that it, some of the time. But I mean, it was really shocking just to see somebody kind of state transparently what I think a lot of us felt for a long time. Yeah. But I mean, was it poorly timed? Because there are limits to what originalism can do, positively speaking. Like, I think originalism is good at striking down Roe because you bring in all these arguments about deeply rooted rights and traditions mm -hmm. in American history, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's originalism's good at striking down supposed right. uh, 
uh, activist legal cases and decisions. Uh, but now, you know, maybe they want the court to do more and maybe they wanted to find a, a, a right to fetal personhood in the 14th Amendment. And originalism might not really get you there. Yeah, that's you know, where you need John whatever they say. In, that's right? true. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I think another uh, kind of connection to more today's day to day conservatism was something that I noticed a lot at the start of the pandemic. And I wrote I actually wrote a piece for the bias that Institute uh, of Christian Socialism publication and a, a piece for TNR, The New Republic, about this, which is I noticed how striking it was that something like whether or not to wear masks, this is in the first month of the pandemic, right, or months where it was controversial, like that was a big thing, right? We didn't have vaccines yet, so, uh, so they, they had to find something to, to gripe about, and it was the mask wearing, but they would often pitch it as this is what happens when a society rejects God secularism sets in people uh no longer believe in an afterlife so death is what they fear most of all a godless people fears that was rr reno's piece in first things like almost to a t right like yes we're a so, culture that's so afraid of death now that we just hide from it you know like cowards. yeah so asking people to wear masks <laughs> during a pandemic was rendered as the inevitable outcome of a secular society uh and and the pathologies that would attend to it mostly like people just trying to stay healthy as long as they can and not die. Um, and that fear, that that lack of, uh, or that fear of death comes from not believing in God. And you can see that there's, this is like, I do think that the, the kind of narrative of decline and catastrophe is such a huge part of the conservative self-understanding and consciousness in the United States these days. It's, you know, uh, when it comes with, uh, you know, even abortion, one of the things we we talked about a lot in our episodes about Roe was among the kind of Christian conservative intellectuals who were opposed to abortion. It was like, you know, connected to the Holocaust, yeah. uh, you know, explicitly uh, and and kind of a terminus of this long decline. Uh, and a lot of issues when you think about it are put in this like this is what like same sex marriage, you know, trans transgender people like it's it's never just a discreet political issue that you know is just one thing you can think about uh and try to do your best on like masks were just not um a way to try to stop the spread of a of a virus that at that point we had no vaccine for very few treatments for and that were filling our hospitals including i lived in new york you know uh freezer trucks outside the morgues because the morgues were too full Right. So the mask wearing was just not like people trying to stay safe during a, a time of extreme danger. <laughs> it was the denouement of, you know, uh, something that happened three centuries ago when societies decided to, you know, reject God or something. I know. And I mean, there is something that sometimes gets a little bit darkly funny about this. I mean, I remember reading the R.R. Reno piece, uh, which you later apologized for because you got COVID and said, you know, it sucks. <laughs> Maybe don't go that far. Uh, so, you know, just to be fair, let's point that yeah. out. But, you know, you kind of sit there and think like, oh, so your whole argument right now is that I'm getting tired of people being so worried about dying. You know, let's just back away from those concerns for a little bit. You think like, Jesus, you know, this is just getting a little bit over the top. But I want us to shift a little bit to kind of more concrete issues, uh, because we've sure. talked a lot about conservative intellectuals, uh, some of the kind of cutting edge in American conservatism, at least this kind of Straussian basis, this post-liberal basis. Uh, but one of the interesting things that comes through in Know Your Enemy uh, is 
how important these conservative intellectuals are to giving a kind of gloss uh, to mainstream conservatism and also how fun well funded they are. That's something that people yeah. are a little bit less familiar with. Because uh, one of the things that, you know, you talk about on Know Your Enemy is how if you're a kind of conservative intellectual, you know, 22, 25 with some talent uh, and they think that you have a future, then there are forums in place that will kind of skyrocket you to the front of the national consciousness. And I'm not really sure that there are similar avenues available to, on the left, uh, which I think is not as not as well not organized, as well organized yeah. uh, not as i'm thinking immediately think of our mutual i guess guest on the show nate hawkman right or he was he yeah. was on our show well, but too, i mean yeah. nate's genuinely a really smart and very exactly. articulate guy i mean sure but i'm just saying he's a good example of someone who is like kind of on the he's he's being groomed and pushed forward to be the you know the future sure. but i mean I, I sometimes I think, just yeah. wish we did more of that on the left where we had the institutions in place to kind of do that or achieve that because they're very very successful at it so i'm yeah. wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that you know how do you take these kind of intellectual energies put these people in a position where they can actually develop an ideological justification for what the party is doing uh, or the movement is doing, however you want to characterize it. And how important is that, do you think? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's been an interesting uh, in the Trump era uh, phrase I hate to use. But, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of rightful um, interrogation of kind of the historiography of conservatism and. You know, uh, uh, if you look at, say, George H. Nash's The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, 1945 to whatever the latest edition is, um, you know, it's very centered around National Review. And there's a way in which, you know, you can tell the story of American conservatism in the in the second half of the 20th century is like a small band of intellectuals started a few magazines <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was Bill Buckley and Frank Meyer, and they just single-handedly restarted the conservative movement. Yeah, and it, and it somehow all like crescendoed in you know Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, right? Uh, and you know I think a lot of historians have drawn us to the rougher edges of conservatism, the nastier, more populist movements and elements that were fueling the right. Um, you know, even some of the, th the first things I wrote about Trump uh, during the Republican primary debates in 2015 and 16. I got riding the Trump tiger, you know, like there is a sense in which these intellectuals have always, you know, kind of, uh, I think, had to clean up the more popular energies. They they hope their movement and politicians can ride to power um, sometimes, you know, try to disown them a bit. But it's, you know, the the interplay between ideas and, and you know, more popular movements and grassroots movements is an interesting one. And by talking about ideas, I don't want to necessarily totally privilege them. But I will say the conservative movement which includes, you know, not just the ideas people, but think tanks and activist groups and, you know, um, uh, single issue groups, you know, and a, dedicated, lot of money. and a lot of money. It's a very small movement. And so I do think the ideas have particular power on the right because um, because of that. Uh, like, look at some of the national conservatism conferences. If you look at, you know, uh, say the one that was in Florida, uh, maybe this fall. Uh, whenever that was, uh, I think it was this fall, uh, you know, you, you would have politicians there like J.D. Vance and Ted Cruz, maybe. Uh, but, you know, someone like uh, at these conferences, maybe not that one in particular, but there are editor magazineers like Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, um, someone from this publication, someone from that publication, and also people involved in various like Capitol Hill organizations, uh, you know, who do lobbying and maybe more grassroots stuff are there too. And so you can see that like 
the ideas people and the politicians and then some of the more grassroots uh, pressure group types are are in the same rooms hashing things out. And so I think ideas have real purchase on the right in a very particular way because of, again, I think the relative smallness uh, of the movement in that sense. I mean, even you just mentioned Nate Hockman. Sometimes Nate will ask me something. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew him in grad school. Or he's like, did you know, did you know everyone? And I was like, well, kind of, but not because I was special, but because if you were in the movement, you would basically know everyone, you know, or be mm. a very one degree of separation from someone. Uh, and and so I, uh, you know, that's important to note, but they do have a lot of money. And because like, you know, I would say it's fair that most people who go into graduate programs are not like dedicated conservatives. Most PhD students aren't like dedicated right wing, you know, movement types. But if you are, that's such a rarity. And they're, so they are for mm -hmm. all their protestations so hungry for the validation of elite institutions and, you know, having people in some of these perches that the, the just the money I got in grad school even was, you know, um, an extra five grand here, an extra 10 grand there. Uh, you know, had I needed like, you know, I had a fellowship where I TA'd and everything, so I didn't need like my tuition paid. But, uh, you know. I could have gotten that taken care of too. And, you know, uh, even, you know, uh, at a certain point in your career, like I do remember uh, at the, I, I was teaching at UVA on like a dissertation fellowship. Uh, I was under Jim Caesar, uh, well-known conservative uh, Straussian uh, political theorist slash kind of does American political development. Uh, you know, he was kind of my my mentor. And, you know, there'd be like two week summer programs at the Boar's Head Inn outside of Charlottesville, where like for maybe a week or two, there would be they would bring in just all the star kind of Straussian professors, uh, but also people who gave it mainstream credibility. Gordon Wood, for example, I remember really? showing up in Peter Onuf, uh, scholar of Jefferson, you know, like there was a. Uh, really serious and you get a really nice stipend and live high in the hong for like two weeks at this basically resort happy hours every night and you'd mingle with you know people who could really help you you know uh, senior academic types who who you know whose views were at least roughly you know similar to yours and uh the kind of again the the way they support people materially like giving them money uh as you know, to make it in academia, there might be a period of time. If you do, I mean, it's a, such a horrific scene these days. And but like one key would be just can you good idea support, starting a podcast if you're struggling, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Can you support yourself along the way enough to, until you maybe you get that break? And so postdocs became a major feature of this movement. The the uh, Jack Miller Center was through the seminars uh, I mentioned were were often through, but they would then sponsor postdocs at various elite institutions. So, you know, uh, having a postdoc at UVA or Harvard, I mean, Harvey Mansfield had, I think one of the original, um, uh, one of these postdocs at his program on constitution and government or something like government and constitution at Harvard, yeah, yeah. right? Is, uh, all these right-wing outfits, they always have the most innocuous names. The more bland the name, the more likely it is actually that it's conservative run, I think. Uh, but you know, <laughs> that was yeah, all- I mean, look at the Federalist like, Society, right? I mean- yeah. You can make a compelling argument at this point that it basically dominates uh, American judicial politics at this point. If you were just here, the Federalist Society, like, oh, you, that's the kind of camping group they like to go back to American Revolutionary War sites or something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. You know? yeah. So just just the support I had as a young, and this is why I say I'm not an embittered ex-conservative. I was treated very well. Yeah. People were very generous to me. And if anything, I feel guilty about that. 
you know, uh, like, you know, I, I'm, I hate that people who are really kind to me um, now feel betrayed. Someone like Deneen, right? Just really. Do they? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, without I, getting I, personal, no, you don't have personal. I mean, I'm perfectly, I, I would still talk to any of these people. But like someone Deneen I am on genuinely bad terms with, I think. He's blocked me on Twitter, oh, okay. for example. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I no okay. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean that's too bad. Yeah. I mean, are there any that like you still like are on good terms with, and they just like respectfully they're like, well, yeah, you had a difference of opinion now, and like that's how it goes. And... Uh, I mean, it's just because of the work I do. I'm not regularly in touch with these people, but like someone right. like okay. uh, Jim Caesar at UVA. Uh, I mean, I haven't really been in touch with him for a while, but I loved him. He was probably I can honestly say he might be the most Socratic individual I've ever personally known uh, in wow. terms of what conversations with him, you know, in his office or over dinner were like. So I have, you know, I, I just don't have any, I mean, I have profound disagreements, but I really don't have personal hostility to, to almost any of these people. Uh, but it's of just course. kind of drifting apart. But, um, but that's just to say, I, again, uh, I was treated very well. And I, I you know, I, it really is about the, the principles I came to believe and where my convictions led me, because if I can honestly say I'm on the left now, I'm, you know, I, I, I mentioned being on dissent's editorial board. Like I kind of really know that the amount of money floating around uh, the right is, is both, it's a lot for the number of people involved, but also they're much better at no strings attached. Uh, I, I want to start uh, a center at university X and, you know, uh, you're not going to have to do the same kind of, application you might for like a, a progressive nonprofit that gives out grants where you're you know you're gonna have to have these metrics in a certain way i don't know uh, it's i'm not yeah, i'm not very true. deep in that world but there's a real sense in which like you know uh if you wanted this money you, you do a, a proposal but you know you, you would know someone at the Earhart foundation or at the thomas w smith foundation right. and, and someone and someone that they know would have told them yes. you know oh this person's going to be applying and yeah. like pretty much you're all set from the yeah, beginning because um, giving money to uh intellectual endeavors is is a hard sell because if you if you have a, if you're a rich person and you want to give money to something probably a lot of them want their name on it right so if you if yeah. you if you give enough money for a building on a campus and you get your name on the front of it that's going to be there for a long time if you sponsor some you know if you give a uh, dissent magazine 50 grand to pay writers for the next few years you might have your like you know at the bottom of the article this this article was supported by a grant from blah, blah, blah. But that's not the same as having your name on a building, right? So yeah, of I, course. I, I think even, you know, there's, there's, but, but when you're, when people are really genuinely ideologically invested as they are on the right, I think just kind of giving money, no strings attached or with very few strings attached is a more, it just happens more often. I don't think there's anything disingenuous about this. Uh, I mean, I've sometimes seen iterations of this argument that run, oh, the right is basically co-opting uh, these talented young students and turning them into little conservatives by essentially bribing them. Uh, I think that's a little bit too cynical. Uh, totally. But I do think that there is something to be no, said politically uh, about this kind of approach to things. Uh, I mean, just to give a contrast, uh, I was speaking to Megan Day. Um, I think it was Megan Day. It might have been... Uh, Journalist for Jacobin. Yeah, about Jacobin. DSA. And they're like, you know, we have a tiny little office with a handful of full-time writers and a lot of us barely make ends meet in the cities that we're you know, working yeah. in. Current Affairs, which is arguably the second largest uh, socialist magazine in the country, has two full-time staff members, right? Uh, two, right? Uh, and you can kind of contrast that with some of these think tanks where, you know, there's 
good liquor and, you know, good food. And you can get, you know, Harvard <laughs> profs will come and get their business cards and they'll write letters of reference for you. It's a pretty yeah. appealing deal. Uh, if you happen to be well, smart and talented. Well, it seems like a more, much more interesting club. Yeah. And, you know, if you happen to be you know, smart and talented and you're leaning in that direction anyway, uh, it's certainly not a bad thing to have these opportunities be opened up for you. And then once you get into that circle, it can be pretty hard to disentangle yourself. Yeah, no, totally. I think yes. um, actually it's funny. There's there's one of my colleagues. I think she's working on like Hobbes and and some uh, some other the other early moderns. And uh, you know, I think she, her supervisor was like, "Oh, you should apply to this thing." I think it's like the Center for Liberal Studies, or it's like basically a libertarian. Oh, this studies. is more of the libertarian. Yeah, maybe Institute yeah. for Liberal Studies. And she's like, you know, they've got all this Koch brothers money. And it's like, you know, mm -hmm. just go. It's OK if you don't agree with them. Just take the money and run. It's like worth it. Right. And like, I think that just goes to your point that they are just willing to dispense. Yeah. Like money to people, even if they don't really care uh, like that much. They're not going to like test you ideologically. They just want more people participating in their yeah. stuff to make it yeah. bigger. That's kind of like the the flip side to it. You know, so the really dedicated ones are really treated quite well, but also like something like the Institute for Humane Studies. I mean, I'm glad Matt kind of brought up it's not as insidious as it might seem because it's one thing I've tried to say in the podcast is it's all straightforward. None of it's not like, you know, uh, chicanery, uh, really, you know, crazy secret stuff. It's all extremely straightforward. And, and you can uh, cut off a goat's head or something, and they're like, "Congratulations, you're a member of this yeah, federal society." Yeah, and and uh, the the Institute for Humane Studies, a kind of classical liberal libertarian outfit associated with George Mason, they would do a lot of summer programs that were specifically meant to just. Uh, they didn't want necessarily just the true believers. That's actually that's the place yeah, I'm talking. Yeah. I'm thinking Be of actually that yeah. is the place because I'm the point is not for you to become a libertarian. The point is for you to think, huh? You know, I really should have some Hayek. On my syllabus, I really should have some, um, uh, you know, thinker X, Y, or Z, uh, Robert Nozick, whatever you know, whatever kind of text might be applicable. It's it's not just to to convert people or win them over with your money. It's to just kind of plant the seed that these are serious ideas, and that if you're a, an academic who wants to kind of give your students a a sense of the range of opinion on things or or bring in new and different kinds of texts. It'll give you a good introduction to some possibilities. For sure, makes sense. I wanted to bring it maybe back to maybe start moving in the direction of wrapping up, um, back to sort of like left wing politics, and I wonder what you think sort of about like strategically because we've been talking about, you know, as you've said, this maybe not as uh, insidious uh, kind of infrastructure that the right has, and then. So there's both maybe a question about like practical organizing, like maybe what can like left wing intellectuals do better. But then the other question would also be more philosophical, which is, you know, I think like there's something like ha like nowadays with what people call, I guess, the woke discourse, it just does seem like there's there's less and less uh, uh, or they're at least being accused um, of, of being less and less connected to some sort of like fundamental truth, you know, this this accusation of relativism, which, you know, has various degrees of truth, various degrees of it just being kind of like propagandistic, you know, uh, distortion. But I guess like, do you see like left, like how important do you see like left wing, left wing politics, left wing theory, having some connection to something, to some like grounded truth? And obviously, maybe that's a loaded question for someone who who is who is religiously inclined, but just rhetorically, because it just feels like right now, argumentatively, um, 
it, it can it can feel disorienting in left wing circles with like what kinds of claims are there are they actually making like what things are they focusing on to actually make it make give it broad appeal where it'll be intuitive to people you know working class people from you know places where you're from right like central yeah. Pennsylvania and, and just to kind of follow that up you know with an anecdote you know when I was doing my PhD you know my background was in human rights mainly you know I'd been in Amnesty International a number of different things but I, I took a class uh, with a bunch of post structuralists and. I brought up issues like I asked, you know, what is justice in this kind of context? What would be the right thing to do? And the teacher sat there and was like, we're not really concerned about that. You know, nobody <laughs> should be so arrogant as to presume what is just and what is unjust. So that's a kind of strong example. And I don't want to imply that everyone you encounter uh, in kind of left wing university circles is like that because they're not. But you can definitely be embedded in this environment that somebody like Bloom is talking about. And if you're on the left, like I eventually became, it can be kind of disheartening to think like, oh, these kinds of big T, you know, capital T truth, capital J justice questions are just things I shouldn't be interested in. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think there's a couple different ways I could try to answer this. And I think one of them is uh, that I think builds up both of what you said. But Victor, you mentioned kind of like the rhetorical problem, like a, a very practical political problem. How do you talk about these things in an intelligible way? And it's funny, I, I just had lunch earlier this week with uh, a friend of mine who uh, works a lot in like urban policy, you know, uh, housing policy, yimby nimby stuff, that kind of thing. And we got to talking that it, I do feel like, I especially thought about this about some with some of the recent debates about crime in the United States, where the left is at such a rhetorical disadvantage, because if we want to as we were talking about earlier, historicize and situate something and say, actually, no, no, like this discrete problem you see right now, crime, you know, however, putting aside debates about how much crime has actually increased and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just say crime is a problem. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, I think the left's answer to that or the way many of us on the left would think about it is to say, well, like, well, what's contributing to that crime? And, right. you know, like what social forces and factors you know, uh, create kind of this, these expendable, you know, surplus labor or some, however you want to describe it, right? People who don't fit in then. And, you know, what do we do with them? We either put them in mental institutions or jails kind of, right? And, you know, the, you, it's about finding the deeper causes and sy systematic reasons why a particular issue like crime might be surging in this moment. Um, whereas the right's just like, we got to whack them. You know, it's like <laughs> whack them. Like, you know, crime, boom, cops, police, money for More them. Police, yeah lock more people up, longer sentences, harsher penalties, right? And and that's a that's a easy to grasp answer. And so I'm not really saying the left needs to, you know, uh, abandon the analyses that I think are right. Like I'm saying that as someone who, that is how I would think about crime, you know? But uh, it, it puts you at a real political and rhetorical disadvantage when the more kind of complicated and complex uh, ways you situate uh, a contemporary issue both historically and kind of uh, its place in the broader political and social system, right? Uh, and I and so uh, maybe that's a bit of a weasel answer because it's saying, well, like no. you know, uh, well, I don't really feel qualified, you know, to to fully answer some of the issues you raise, but I do feel very comfortable saying that's something I've been thinking a lot about. That you know, if you want to attend to complexity and systematic factors, and not just say, you know, people are bad. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, uh, the only thing we can do is just, I mean, I remember when we had Ross Douthat on New Year Enemy, it's a line that just haunted me because it's in a bad way. Um, but he, he <laughs> described like putting the tourniquet on, <laughs> uh, like wrapping a tourniquet around American society in the crime, 
wave of the 70s or whatever you know like longer sentences more people in jail he described that solution as like a tourniquet and it, which is such <laughs> a violent like disturbing image in some ways but it's but i think it gets at uh you know something like crime happens the conservatives will tell you just what to do and it won't be very complicated and it intuitively makes sense well shouldn't we arrest and jail criminals right like yeah you know, no totally um well one yeah yeah well one, one thing i noticed about like the left-wing discourse is like it ends up getting like I, I think about my own students um you know when we talk about some of these issues you know they've had to this summer they had to write some argumentative essays about like you know what what should social movements focus on you know and and but with different problems whether it's like you know indigenous issues in canada or mm -hmm. you know or the anti-racist movement and you know and so i think your point about sort of like that the right has this rhetorical advantage because they can they can you know make these uh like kind of sim simple answers and i think what's happening a little bit that i worry about on the left is what starts off as a very like complicated right like a systematic explanation which is you know which i think i agree with that analysis yeah. as well but then we're seeing it get kind of like deployed at the everyday level it's just like oh talking about these these what seem to a lot of people as these vague terms as like systematic racism mm -hmm. or like you know and like that becomes like a boogie word now it's yeah. like it's like uh, you know the right and you know working class you know middle america sees it as like a dog whistle for some kind of like nefarious critical race marxism <laughs> stuff and you know and that's just you know, as much as like I hate the like focusing too much on the culture war issues, I guess I do really see it as like a little bit of a problem, like the way that that rhetoric is being used. And it's just it feels like it's just giving such fuel uh, to the right to be able to continue to add, uh, you know, gasoline onto the the, narr the narrative of decline. Uh -huh. Right. Because I feel like all these things feed in. Look yeah. at how they're just going to reducing you to racist. So I guess how do you see it like that as related? And yeah. Just to follow ahead, that up man. also, I want to say that like. um we were having a little bit of a discussion about how do you reach out, for instance, to people um, in religious communities uh, who might be interested uh, in adopting certain left-wing views, particularly on economic issues, uh, but nevertheless see certain forms of, let's call it, left-wing secularism or materialism as just you know a no-go, you know, absolutely. Uh, and my kind of position was that Michael Walzer, you know, one of the founders of Descent Magazine, was right, I think, in a lot of contexts, which is that the most effective way to reach people is to what he called imminent critique, which is just a fancy way of saying, <laughs> if you're trying to convince someone to adopt an entirely different worldview than the one that they already have, uh, so that you can get them to shift politically, you're probably gonna have a really fucking hard time of it, right? Uh, because you have to start from first principles, they have to be open to that kind of change, not going to get much very far if you can sit there and talk to a religious person and say well let's look at the bible right you know what does jesus say it says blessed are the poor blessed are the meek do you really think that republican politics cares that much about poor people when you have people like jd vance cutting yeah. funding uh to mothers who need uh what is the respect? uh formula right <laughs> right you know and i do think that there's something to this imminent argument right that Maybe the best yeah. thing to do is try to reach out to people using a language that they're familiar with and get them to budge on the issues that they're open to budging on and leave the rest aside for a little while. I mean, this isn't a full kind of strategy. Yeah. Part. yeah. It's just something I've been thinking a little bit about recently. Yeah. No, it's um, uh, I'm really with you on that, Matt. And right after not long after the 2016 election, early in 2017, I think dissent spring issue that year, I wrote a piece on the religious left, a Christian left, and what it could bring to like the broader left project. And one of the things I really, uh, you know, because I am religious myself, it's not just like using religious rhetoric. I, I happen to believe it, but I do think it can, 
being attentive to religious communities is a way out of this conundrum in some ways, because I think there is a vocabulary of justice and liberation within religious traditions that yeah, is not that is not like an alienating or, or just new and different for some people, uh, more academic derived discourse. And I I was thinking about this once my I mentioned, I think that Jean Bethke Elstein, uh, who died in 2013, she was a very well known political theorist and public intellectual. Uh, and I was I spent a lot of time with her in some of her her last year's teaching. I was her TA and she taught a class on uh, it's called the idea of freedom in America. And um, I remember what this always stayed with me. She once said, and I mentioned this in my dissent article, but she once said, you know, Dr. King didn't said he have a he has a preference. <laughs> she said he has a dream. Right. And like that's just like a very different register of moral uh, capaciousness and I think possibility of connecting with people to use a language of like dreaming, right? Uh, and I and I think it's no accident that you know some of the if you look at the high points of American political rhetoric from the perspective of you know someone say my politics, you look at say Lincoln's second inaugural, right? How drenched in quasi theological language that is theological language, and then someone like Dr. King, he was a actual minister. You know, or an ordained minister, uh, and and it's it just isn't surprising to me that people able to use some of those terminology and language were better able to connect. Made you know that their rhetoric seems more powerful and accessible in a way than than some of what we see now, maybe, or even FDR, right? Uh, I mean. Yeah. We can all grant that FDR had big problems, and so did the New Deal, and that was <laughs> yeah. racially problematic in some respects. But you know, you don't sit there and remember, you know, the specifics of this program or that program. Do you remember him talking about freedom from want, freedom from anxiety, all these kinds of things, or freedom from fear? Right? Uh -huh. These kind of very powerful moral ideals that are put forward as aspirations for the country to try to achieve. That was what really mobilized people on behalf of this program, I think, at least. Uh, yeah. And if he had used a more opaque language or a more cynical language, I don't think you would have found people invest themselves in the same way. Yeah, I kind of have two, two things to add to this. One is um, just about FDR. I think it is forgotten just how Christian he was yeah. in a lot of ways. And I was very surprised uh, maybe last over a year ago now, I had a conversation with uh, the historian Eric Rauschway, who wrote the great book, uh, with the Yale University Press, why the New Deal matters. One of those short, like 200 page, why X matters books. But uh, I think it was either in the book or in the conversation we had about it, he mentioned that there was actually a kind of a, a liberal progressive Christian group that put out um, uh, FDR's, maybe his first inaugural, but like as an annotation of the Sermon of the Mount. Like they were trying to connect up the Sermon on the Mount and uh, the new Jesus from Jesus in the New Testament with like FDR's rhetoric, uh, coming into office. And I was like, I did not know that. And it's really fascinating. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I would say to, to be kind of, um, well, both to show my colors as a, as a Bernie Sanders fan, and but also to say it's, I'm not trying to do something narrowly religious here. I do think there's a kind of populist register too that is, can be similar. And I think Bernie's pretty good at it. Um, not good enough, apparently. But, yeah, uh, no, not good enough. You know, uh, but like, you know, fight for someone who doesn't look like you. Um, isn't that different than love your neighbor as yourself? Kind of, you know, uh, and but I think, you know, a, 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 an angry populist rhetoric can be 
you know, sometimes the language of sin and the language of greed aren't that different. Or, you know what I mean? Um, there's, I think there are, uh, I'm not trying to just say all Democrats or all left-wing politicians need to start talking about religion, because I, I do think it, it doesn't really work if it's not sincere at some level. Uh, but I, I, that's just to say my own thinking. I've really thought a lot about the, the religious uh, resources that, that, you know, inform my own view of of things, my own left-wing politics, and that I think when I look out at the United States, it was just, you know, the 4th of July we just celebrated. And I was thinking about Richard Rorty's line at the beginning of Achieving Our Country, you know, that it just as what, yeah, self-respect is necessary for, like, individual self-improvement. So a sort of national pride is necessary mm -hmm. for, you know, uh, the great reform movements, the national improvement, improving the country you live in. Uh, and, you know, that's very debatable, even the slippage between like national pride and individual self-esteem or something is debatable. But I do think, you know, uh, I'm I tend to be pretty favorable and, and drawn toward uh, uh, impulses to root more of the left wing project in like a distinctly American idiom. Uh, you know, drawing on the, the heroes that the left I mean, might Lincoln drop. Lincoln was brilliant right? at that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like to the extent, uh, I don't know who the, the left-wing pantheon of, of heroes and heroines would be, you know, in American history, but, you know, the left should have a usable past. The right certainly does, both about their own movement yeah. and about the country's origins and how those two things connect. So the, that's, I mean, one way to cash some of this out is just that the right... They, they have a story they tell about themselves, which is very Whiggish and, you know, onward and upward. Um, but it's connected to, you know, the American founding and the origins of the United States. Uh, and I think that's something the left has a little more problem with, uh, both, you know, how, how we talk about what we want to achieve now, but how we situate it in, you know, the American, uh, American history, both rhetorically and otherwise, in terms of the examples you point to and the kind of, you know, uh, the people you think are, are worth emulating in some way. But I, all movements need a usable past. I but, yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. And I think one of the biggest problems on the left is its tendency. You know, I think it has its own narrative of decline, right, <laughs> which is which 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 has, you know, um, likes to really emphasize like past wrongs um, and, and kind of talk about how they're still with us. Which is not untrue, right? Um, but I think it can become uh, they can become a little bit overly fixated by it, which then ends up giving the other the other side ammunition. So I wonder, I don't know how. Like, I th so I think like it's important to be able to find a way to talk to use uh, the past for something hopeful. So yeah, yeah absolutely. And I do think there is a usable pantheon uh, of left heroes in the United States uh, that could be operationalized uh, to inspire people. That's kind of a crude way to put it. It's not very inspiring. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you think about Lincoln and FDR, Maya Angelou, Eugene Debs, um, MLK, obviously, right? These are all people who inspire me, you know, uh, and I know they inspire other people. I'm not sure why it is that sometimes we don't foreground them uh, as kind of a canon of progress, uh, if you want to call it that, that's deeply rooted uh, in the American experience. Well, and I mean, it would look different elsewhere, but... I just want to kind of move towards wrapping up because, uh, you know, we're already almost at two hours. And <laughs> since you're the no, uh, your enemy guy, I think that we should end on a note about conservatism. Sure. Uh, so what would you say are the key things? Let's say the, the three key things that as leftists, we need to know about the conservative movement, whether we're talking about in terms of everyday politics, it's intellectuals, uh, you know, it's orange demons, whatever. Mm. 
Well, I, I was raised, I was trained as an analytical person, right? So there's always got to be three of everything. <laughs> it doesn't have to be three. Yeah. Don't worry. Um, well, I think uh, one kind of question before us, especially uh, after the overturning of roads, like just how far will they go? And I think it's my answer is further than you think. <laughs> uh, uh, like I'm someone like not a lot shocks me on the right. Um, and it's because, you know, uh, even though I mentioned that some of the explicitly anti-liberal, anti-democratic elements on the right we see now were not as present 15 years ago when I was a, a young person on the right, um, there was still the the kind of resentment uh, was it was a powerful emotion I encountered a lot on the right and a lot of, you know, um, wacky ideas. I mean, there's like monarchists on the right, right? And it's like, well, so... If, I, I counted I mean, so I, many of those online. It's really weird, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not saying they're like driving Republican Party politics, but I'm saying if you're, if you feel comfortable being uh, a part of a movement that is just like, yeah, uh, people in it say, yeah, I'm a monarchist. Are, how, how much are you really going to cry over you know, some voting rights of black people being abrogated in the South. Come on, right? <laughs> um, it's just not going to be something that flips you out. Uh, so I think that's one thing. How far will they go further than you think? Uh, Such an uh, optimist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hard time to be an optimist. Yeah, right now, I yeah, sure, I, sure, But sure. I, I have to think of something other than that. Um, uh, what would you say about its intellectuals? Like, I don't want to, oh, sure, I don't yeah. want us to sit here and say like, what's the core intellectual project behind conservatism? Because so many people, you know, spend a lot of time like trying to pin that down. But what are like some of the key things about the right wing as an intellectual movement that people should understand? Like, what is it committed to? Very, very broadly. I think this point is worth dwelling on though, like about how far they'll go. Just quick, just briefly, because <clears throat> I think I I worry. Um, like, you know, I, I think it should be a wake up call to like kind of the left to be able to to actually like I'm not saying we want to do as, you know, like the, the same sort of like bad faith kind of like um, politics that, that, that the right is doing. But God, it does really make me frustrated with like some of the kind of like purity politics that we see on the on the left about like, oh, you know, we can't vote. Don't vote for yeah. Biden yeah. because he's not left enough. Don't vote for this. You know, like this kind of like hipster cynicism that I'm just so tired of from someone on, on the left. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but that's one. I, that's that's like something I, I, I worry about. And just like with seeing the overturning now, it just makes me so much more mad uh -huh. at those people, I guess, the the sort of cynical hipster leftist. I completely agree. I mean, I sit there and I'm like, you know, there's something really privileged about thinking that you can focus on the narcissism of small differences on the left uh, when the barbarians are marching and Rome is going to burn really, really soon uh, if we don't all do something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was someone who, you know, um, was all in for Bernie during the primaries, but you know when it came time in the lead up to the general election, I was really unambivalent about voting for Biden. Not because he hasn't disappointed me, he has. Not because I loved him, I didn't. Yeah. But it was just, you know, uh, for right now, these are this is the choice in front of us, and it would be such a catastrophe if Trump won again. Yeah. Uh, uh, to, I mean, the right, they're really emboldened right now. Um, I think, you know, after Roe, the wind is at their backs. Uh, you know, I think Biden's really, I mean, my goodness, look at his opinion, uh, you know, public opinion of him, his, the way he's polling. Uh, you know, uh, uh, things could get really ugly again really quickly. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I do think 
the fact that I understand the right wing threat a certain way has made me less inclined to, at the end of the day, put up a big show of not voting for Biden or something. Because it's like, I guess I just don't think morally it's that fraud of a decision. Because I realize that I am privileged. I live in New York City. It took me 15 minutes to vote. (laughs) <laughs> or 20 minutes yeah. to vote or something, right? Uh, and I know sure. lots, lots of people just stay in line longer than that, and that's uh, terrible and unfair. And I, you know, in my world, I want to live in that wouldn't happen. But, you know, to me, it just was not a difficult decision at all to walk over 15 or 20 minutes to the public school uh, gymnasium uh, in my neighborhood and cast a vote for Biden. Um, because, again, it, it's it's, you know, well, even right now, I mean, as terrible as Biden seems to be performing and as pathetic and pitiful, the response to the overturning of Roe, like to me, it was worth it just for Biden's uh, National Labor Relations Board. Mm-hmm. If he did nothing else, it was worth the 15 minutes of my time <laughs> to get, you know, just to, uh, I think, be able to support some of the, the labor victories we're seeing in union organizing. Yeah. Right? Not having a hostile federal government in a certain kind of way has been important. And that to me was worth the 15 minutes, even if I'm otherwise, you know, very disappointed in how things have and it's, been going. It's, it's crazy to think that, you know, I think you talked about it actually on your the part three of your of the row episode. The fact that all these religious conservatives could, you know, get on board with Trump. Right. And it's uh-huh. like and then you see on the on the left that these, you know, what I'm calling cynical hipsters are like having a hard time, you know, voting for Biden. And it's like, that's like, but they're fine. Like these so nominally religious people are like, yeah, we'll use Trump. Like we know he doesn't believe in this stuff. We know he's probably paid for numerous abortions, but like he's going to get us what we want. And you had this really, uh, you know, you pointed out some of the kind of really amusing. I mean, it's darkly amusing intellectual loop-de-loops that people go through to justify this. I mean, one of the ones that I enjoyed you talking about was the Cyrus justification, right? Yeah, King Cyrus uh, in the the Old Testament. Yeah, Yeah, in the the Old Testament, you know, there's this argument uh, that King Cyrus, even though he himself is not a believer or a man of God, is being used by God to advance God's intention. And a lot of right-wing evangelicals uh, and religious leaders would say, oh, see, you know, it's very similar, right? He might not be holy, but God is using him as an instrument. And if anything, that's why we need to double down on him right now. But I I do just want to come back to that one last question just to kind of end on, because I always like to have a kind of big picture panoramic sweeping kind of finish. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what are the key things that conservatives want? Let's just make it really brutal and to the point like that. Like if they could live in their ideal world, what would it look like? Mm. Well, um, I'll try to answer that. And I might not be able to say their ideal world, but I think the world they're bringing into being um, uh, because they might not be able to get everything they want because there is a sense that uh, it's not an accident that the Supreme Court has delivered the biggest conservative win of the past however many decades, right? The, the branch of government least, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, connected to popular pressure, the will of the voters, et cetera. No, not really connected at all in some ways, right? Uh, it's not shocking to me that that's been done. And I'm not sure they'll be able to get everything they want. But instead, um, this is what I'm seeing. Uh, and I'm, I'm working on a, need, you know, to go back to Mick Jagger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if you put together things like the Supreme Court ruling about uh, uh, concealed carry permits, right, basically eliminating all limitations, you know, on, on who and where they can carry pack heat you know, out in society, things like the bounty hunter abortion law in Texas, um, uh, stand your ground laws. Um, laws that basically let people um, run over protesters in their car vehicle at, at protests and marches, um, the place of cops in our society, 
both the kind of like wildcat strikes where they're just seeming to not deal with you know the 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 story of the San Francisco DHS Abudin who actually had to rent a U-Haul to bring in some shoplifters because the cops were not responding to him you know uh and as they you know uh seem to continue to kill gun people down with near immunity um i i i there's something deeply antisocial at the heart of the right right now that you add all these things together and it's just like a society where being in public um being together in public uh you know um thinking there are public things like even the attacks on public schools right like things that are, are held in common uh they might not be able to overturn all that like positively with their own alternatives that are affirmed by legislation into law but they can essentially destroy you know a sense of public things in the common good in the united states that we live i mean <laughs> we live in a society um <laughs> right we but but you know as margaret thatcher told us we don't actually um uh, and you know it's it's one way of getting their way because it throws us back on the private hierarchies and and for, and you know without the state being what equalizes citizens who otherwise might have very different amounts of money and power and standing in society. You you get rid of the public goods. You get rid of the sense of you know uh, equality before the law. Like people, uh, you know uh, that sense of just basic fairness and and again public things. We live in a society. Uh, we're basically going to moving to a, a point where we're going to live in a in a country where people are roaming around with guns everywhere. Um, public schools are are viciously attacked. Um, you know whether it's via cutting their funding or like the groomer stuff, right? So as they're giving people more and more guns, they're also saying, hey, there's a bunch of pervert gays out there trying to corrupt your kids, you know? And as they're insisting and, that you have to give birth whether you like to or not, they're yes. going to slash social programs that are there to yeah. help young mothers yeah. and families. I mean, and, and, uh, I mean, it's deeply antisocial for a woman, or a pregnant person to not be able to talk to their doctor about a life-threatening situation like an ectoptic presidency or, or pregnancy or like a um, you know, miscarriage of some kind. When women are fearful, when pregnant people are fearful of walking into their doctor because they're having a miscarriage, because they could be prosecuted for an abortion. Uh, this is just a, you know, I mean, when you can't talk to your doctor that way, like what kind of society are we building? And so I see the, the thread that's running through so much that's happening right now is a kind of assault on a, on a, on a democratic public oriented uh you know we live in a society there is such a thing as the common good we do owe each other things and we can build things that enhance you know our relationships to each other and the sense of solidarity we have and what i see now is that you know it's there we're kind of sliding back this is a political theory podcast you know it's like they're they're actually go they think the state of nature is the good part <laughs> right <laughs> uh like you know uh that's kind of the way I see it. And it makes it very hard then for people, those of us on the left, to convince people to to have hope for more solidaristic, democratic um, ways of, of living together, right? It's just you hunker down, you say, I have mine, I just want to keep it. That's all I can hope for. I can just keep my shit and have my guns and fend off people who want to take it from me. And that's that's the extent of your political and social horizon. That's what I really fear. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, when you really start adding up the gun stuff, the abortion stuff, the attacks on public schools, so on and so forth, you, you do really see this, I think, deeply antisocial, atomized, like, you know, people shouldn't trust each other. Uh, every fight you get into at a public place could turn and you could be mowed down. You could be mowed down in your place of worship. 
you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, it's a very pessimistic note to end on, but it's what I see happening. And I think, but I especially wanted to mention it because I think for me as someone on the left, I think about it a lot. Like, uh, we, we don't just have to win and like achieve things straightforwardly that we all know we have to do. It's uh, part of the task is I think overcoming uh, what's becoming a more deeply ingrained kind of sociopathic, um, <laughs> you know, uh, low trust, uh, society where people are going to be on edge and, and, uh, you know, the prospect of collective action, uh, ordered toward the common good, you know, enacted democratically is just becoming something I think is harder and harder for people to really imagine in a robust way. Yeah. I got to say, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith once said that the modern conservatives engaged in one of man's oldest intellectual enterprises, uh, which is to figure out a superior moral justification for selfishness. Uh, and that might not be entirely true or entirely fair, but it definitely expresses something really important. And on that chilling note, uh, and on your dystopian vision of the future, <laughs> I just want to say that it was a real pleasure for you to come on. Uh, I love this conversation. I wish we could carry on for another half hour, but it would be too much. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. And yeah. thank you for teaching both of us uh, a lot about what's going on in American conservatives. No problem. Right it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. We could have kept going. I'm only just now getting totally. really wound up, as you can tell by my last answer. So <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, thank yeah, you very totally. much. I appreciate it. No problem. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Awesome. <laughs>